Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, how to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello. And welcome to the final episode of War College. Don't worry, we're not going anywhere, we're just becoming Angry Planet. From time to time, we record things that, for whatever reason, don't quite work. Sometimes the audio is bad, sometimes the news cycle destroys the story, sometimes the very famous big-name podcast host you have on as a guest is clearly drunk and loses his end of the audio, sometimes you find out the guest is a CIA agent who never set foot in the country he's talking about, and you decide it's best just to scrap the whole thing. Following audio is... Almost one of those episodes, but I still think it's worth a listen. Back in May, just before Jason returned to the show, I talked with the British journalist Gareth Brown about Syria, Russia, and Iran. We talked the geopolitics of the region and what's been happening since Soleimani's death. Some of the information here is out of date, and there's places where the audio is a little scratchy. But I think this was a good conversation about some vital stuff, and I thought it'd be nice to go out on something like this before we officially launch Angry Planet. We're clearing the backlog, so to speak. So thank you for listening. We will miss War College, but we're going to be much happier as Angry Planet. You're listening to War College, a weekly podcast that brings you the stories from behind the front lines. Here are your hosts. Gareth Brown, thank you so much for coming on to War College and walking us through this topic. My pleasure. Thanks for having me on. Okay, so can you broadly give us the details of the relationship between Russia and Iran? As I think the perception in America is that they're allies, right? Which is couldn't be further from the truth. Yeah, it's, it's a complex issue and it's quite opaque in many regards. We've seen, particularly since around 2015, we've seen this massive kind of Russian re-engagement in the Middle East, especially in Syria. Iran has obviously been in the neighborhood, so to speak, has always been involved. And I think this, there's been this interesting relationship which has been of strategic importance to 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 both of those kind of powers but i think more recently especially in syria we're, we're seeing a divergence in interests and whilst they're they're working together on certain levels and in certain areas in other parts of particularly syria their interests are um starting to diverge or, or it's becoming more obvious that's not to say that any kind of recent crisis let's say covid19 or anything like that had suddenly pushed either Russia or Syria in, in a different direction in, in the Middle East and in Syria. It's maybe nudged it or, or exacerbated other stresses. But yeah, I think it's, I think it's important to, to 
bear this in mind, there's been a lot of talk recently about all these recent tensions in Syria between Russia and, 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 and the regime and the IRGC and IRGC-linked militias. I'm sure we'll get into this a little later on. But from my perspective, I don't think these tensions are recent re- revelations. They're, they're, they're issues, fissures that have always been there. And in many ways, I guess we're bound to come to the boil at some point. All right, Iran. I, I get like why they have why they have stake in all of this. Why it's important that they are active in the region. Like I under I understand it, but Russia fuddles me a little bit. Can we, and you said that their engagement is recent, especially in Syria, recent in terms of geopolitics. Can you can you tell me like what we know about what Moscow's goals are, what they're doing, and where they're operating? Sure. More recently, that relationship has become muscular, but Russia has a long-standing relationship with the Assad regime. That goes back to the Cold War. It was a very reliable client for the Russians. And actually, if you look at Russian troop levels, going back to the, to the Cold War, they've never really changed much. Russia has always had that military presence in, in Syria. They've always had that military base, the Mediterranean seaport. Those presence... That kind of presence has been there in, in one form or another. But what we've seen since 2015 specifically, which is when the kind of Russian intervention in Syria officially started, this was at a point when actually it looked, it's hard to believe it now, but it looked like the Assad regime was really on the verge of, of falling. It was really in, in dire straits and Damascus falling to whichever rebel or opposition group was a kind of realistic prospect. And that's when we saw this kind of muscular Russian intervention. And that has, it's been very heavily reliant on kind of Russian special forces, but it's taken a lot of different shapes. Everything from working with local actors, recruiting uh, militias, fighters, there's economic interest there. And then there's also attempts to shore up the the Assad regime's legitimacy and the legitimacy of the state institutions. And, and I think this is a particularly kind of cogent issue at the minute. Because whilst Iran, how many times have we heard talk about this land bridge from Tehran to, to Beirut, this this being part of the IRGC's kind of regional ambitions, those kind of interests have always been there. But, but I question how much the IRGC, the Iranians have invested in the Assad regime per se. And what we've seen since the start of the, the Syrian civil war is through the use of use and recruitment of, of militias, groups like Hezbollah, but other IRGC Quds Force linked groups like the Liwa Fatimiyun, Zainabiyun, and the, the Iraqi militias too. We've seen the Iranians essentially creating an apparatus in Syria which is independent of the state. So their interests and their influence is, to a large extent, not reliant on the government of Bashar al-Assad through proxies and it's done through groups like Hezbollah and it's in a way it's coup proofed I guess it's interests against a, a sudden fall or toppling of, of the regime in, in Syria that's well, how, how the Iranians how much of Syria can Assad be even said to control right now yeah he controls the important parts <laughs> that's what you might say most of the population is, is in the west and these these big cities where we've seen these particularly ferocious battles in the last five or six years, whether that's Aleppo or Hama or Homs. And he controls much of that kind of Western Mediterranean coast. As you go out to the east and in the southeast and obviously in the northeast where the Kurds are in control, that that control by Assad is obviously far greatly diminished. But 
a lot of that area is desert. There are oil fields out there, of course, but the kind of population and economic centers are under the regime's control. And what are Iran's specific goals, or do we have, or as much as we know? So I think the Iranians are definitely interested in using Syria as a launch pad for their kind of regional ambitions and for regional control and exercising that. Much as we're starting, we've, we've seen them do in, in Yemen with the Houthis, Syria is, is, is a massive node f- for the Iranians. They've got their very powerful kind of proxy in, in Lebanon, Hezbollah. And to lose Syria, for lack of a better phrase, would mean potentially losing access or direct access to um, to that group. Obviously, there's there's importance in Syria. There's there are kind of Shia shrines, which this sort of stuff appears a lot in the the Iranian propaganda and, and messaging about why Syria is important. There are some economic interests there, but it's also just as much about using Syria to push the Islamic revolution to other countries or to ensure it is ongoing across the region. Has there been any, let's get into some of the things that we teased a little bit ago. Tell me about the tension between some of these, these Iran-backed militia groups and Russian troops in Syria. Yeah, this is, I've written a fair bit about this recently, and I think this is a really fascinating chapter. And I suspect this is what we're going to be talking about vis-a-vis Syria for the next year or couple of years. But yeah, we're, we're seeing like evidence of tensions between the groups. So the one example which I've written about quite recently is with the Fatimiyun Brigades, which is, it's an IRGC Quds Force created militia. I mean, it's, they basically recruit Afghan refugees who are living in Iran, Shia Afghan refugees who are living in Iran, and they send them to Syria. And these guys have been, some people have described them as cannon fodder. And then they get sent to Syria and they get, they've, they've really been in the thick of some of the kind of fiercest battles. And they've been quite effective, actually. Uh, now, Liwa Fatimiyun is through and through an IRGC creation. Recently, I reported on a, a kind of mid-level commander who's based with the group in Deir Azor, who has essentially been flipped by the Russians. Now, this is quite significant because we're seeing like Russia attempting to tease away some of the IRGC's prized assets in Syria and offering training, weaponry, supplies, these sorts of things. So this was quite a significant development. There have been tensions before. A good example is the battle for, for Palmyra. That was really a race between... This, this, this never really came... This didn't come out until after the battle, but... Palmyra, when the regime took that back from ISIS, that was really a race between the Russians, um, the Russian-backed guys and the Iranian-backed guys. Everyone wanted that propaganda coup of liberating that kind of ancient city from ISIS. And then obviously the Russians won it. And I'm sure you remember the, the Russian orchestra played a concert mm-hmm. in Palmyra and that was all over the news. And that was the story about the Russian orchestra playing in that city recently captured from ISIS. So that was a kind of early indication of, of the, the brewing rivalry. But we really didn't. I've heard stories about kind of militia commanders literally saying to folks in Damascus, get up there, get up towards the front line, just throwing everything they had at it just so that they could beat um, the other guys. So this is, this is a, a rivalry that's been going on for what, well, five years or longer now since Russia really intervened in, in, in Syria. We've seen it with a few others. There's a smaller militia called Liwa al-Quds, which is a regime militia comprised of Palestinians. And We've seen the Russians attempting to peel that away too. That's on a much smaller scale. But then 
These are not isolated incidents. They, they add up to kind of Russian efforts to, to undermine how the Iranians are doing um, business in Syria. There's, you only have to look at some of the statements being made by Russian officials recently. There's, there's obviously some dissatisfaction there. And my take would be that a lot of that stems from how the Iranians, the IRGC, and, the, and their, their clients in, in Damascus are doing things. The Russians don't see that as a kind of sustainable future for Syria. Is there, what are the Russian goals here? Obviously, Assad's been a reliable client, as you said. Mm-hmm. I'm just, I'm trying to, I'm trying to wrap my mind around the geopolitics of why you would get so enmeshed in this civil war. Like, why do mm-hmm. they, why does it, why do they need to power project in this area? Yeah, I think t- to begin with, it was, it was really about maintaining access to those Russian bases and, mm-hmm. and being able to station Russian assets, to continue to station Russian assets in, in Syria. I think that was a, a genuine fear, especially in the earlier years of the war. But it's not just in Syria where we've seen this, but we really have seen Russia and Putin become emboldened, especially with this kind of US withdrawal or this kind of US stagnation when it came to Syria. Uh, Russia has a chance to be the superpower and sort this mess out. And they're absolutely grasping that opportunity with both hands. The fighting is largely finished now. Obviously, we've got Idlib, but I think there's definitely winding down of Russian assets in Syria. But this is where we're really starting to see the difference between the Russians and the Iranians. Now, we see the Russians really trying to reinstate legitimacy in Syrian state institutions. So the Iranians, the IRGC, are happy for militias to be running the show in Damascus and controlling airport security, things like that. And, and the Russians are saying, no, you need a, a legitimate state. And we can obviously debate where that legitimacy comes from. But you right. need a legitimate state, which is functioning through ministries, through army units, divisions of the army, not through these kind of rags, ragtag militias who aren't accountable for, for anyone. And this is going to be the significant battle because... A lot of people in Syria uh, have carved out fiefdoms throughout this war. It happens in, in every war. But, and, and the Russian kind of efforts to rebuild the state institutions are going to clash with that. And it's definitely something to look out for, I think. So do you see the, this as basically entering a different phase of conflict in that region? Like the civil war draws down and you have now these proxy battles between Russia and Russian-backed groups trying to rebuild some semblance of the state, and then the militia groups backed by Iran that are carving out fiefdoms? I, I, absolutely. And, and this might not, I guess saying that it's a new stage of the war, it might, that might imply that there's going to be open fighting right. between these guys, which I don't necessarily um, think is the case. But I do think it's, it's a whole new um, chapter for the Russians to do what they want to do. And let's, they, the, the Russians are the most probably the most powerful actor in Syria now, for them to be able to do achieve what they want to do, they're going to have to undo some of the IRGC-linked gains. They're going to have to unwind some of those IRGC uh, militias. They're going to have to loosen that the grip that the Kurds force have on certain individuals, certain offices in, in Damascus, all these things. So there was, you know, I'll give you another recent example was uh, just at the end of April there. And again, this wasn't widely reported. But Damascus International Airport, the security hitherto, the security around the airport had always been controlled by 
IRGC linked divisions of the army. And we saw that changed in, at the end of April. We had the fifth corps or parts of the fifth corps, which is notably it's a part of the army that's a lot more uh, loyal to Russia, shall we say. They were given uh, the job of, you know, holding security at the airport. Little things like that. I think they really add up to this kind of much greater picture of tension and, and jostling and jockeying between the two. Yeah, I think I do want to stress that because I think that's important, kind of this feature of the way war is conducted now. That's one of the big, bigger themes of the show in recent years is that war has changed and it's very, and it's a bigger topic than just what we're talking about right now, but like this idea of these different kind of proxy groups and in the Russian case, groups directly tied, more jockeying for position and conducting this low intensity conflict is pretty typical now, right? You look at Ukraine, it's a little bit higher intensity. It's about keeping that place in tension and keeping that war going. How has the death of Kasim Soleimani affected all of this? Yeah, this is a really interesting question. Because on the one hand, you have people who say, okay, this is I remember when this happened, how were we, about five months ago now, when he was mm-hmm. assassinated at Baghdad Airport, killed at Baghdad Airport. Some people were saying, okay, this is the end of, of the IRGC Quds Force as we know it. And other people saying, oh, it's just one guy. It doesn't matter. Of course, the truth is probably somewhere in the middle of it. But I, I think it has had a major effect on, on how the Quds Force and the Iranians in general have been able to do business. In Syria, particularly, or also in Iraq, but in Syria, he wasn't just a... Uh, he wasn't just a military commander. He was the diplomat in chief. Mm. He was the one rushing around and ensuring um, and championing Iranian interests. I really can't stress enough how well-respected he was on the ground in, in Syria and in Iraq as well. He's, we've all read that Dexter Filkins piece, that profile of him, and mm-hmm. he's called the, the, sh- the Shadow Commander. That's like the nickname he's got. But actually, one thing I've noticed over the last few years being in reporting in Syria and spending a lot of time in Baghdad too is it's so many people had met him and I'm I'm not just talking here about the high level guys I'm I've like I've met mid-ranking officers in the Iraqi military ones who they're not even sympathetic to the Iranians mid low-ranking officers and soldiers the same in Syria diplomats civil servants who really didn't have any significance in the grand scheme of things but they'd all met him and interacted with him he was so visual he was always out there on the ground and i I think his death was a a big i do think his death was a big loss no i was speaking i spoke to some people in this afghan militia the fatima yun brigades and at the time they were saying they were really questioning if the militia was going to be wound up. It was a kind of existential issue for them in many ways. And where Soleimani was really strong was he was a great firefighter dealing with issues as they came up. And he, he was famed for that in Iraq when, when a new government was being formed or where there, where there were issues around minister selection or he was the guy that would fly in and he'd meet with all the parties and he'd bring them together and then help them hammer out an agreement. His replacement, Ismail Ghani, he just doesn't have that presence. He also doesn't, he doesn't speak Arabic. He doesn't have that kind of interpersonal relation. So I think it's, I think it's been a huge blow. I spoke with a former Iraqi government minister about two months, two months ago about this. And he said the sheer 
politicians in Baghdad right now, they remind, they seem like orphans. That was the exact phrase he, he, he used. Like they, they didn't have this really reliable kind of inspiring guy who would just show up at the right moment to fall back on. So I think there's, I think we're seeing things in Syria. For example, this Fatimiyun commander I, I was talking about earlier, who, who the Russians have essentially flipped in the last few months. I don't think that could happen if Soleimani was still around, because Soleimani would have caught wind of that and he would have gone straight there and he would have sat down and had a one-to-one meeting with that guy in the blink of an eye. And his replacement just doesn't, he just doesn't have that gravitas. So I do think it's, it's had a massive issue. It's not just, he wasn't just a military commander. He was everything. He had, he had so much power and so much authority from the Iranian regime, from the regime in Tehran, that he could go into meetings and it could be with an Iraqi minister. It could be with a militia head. It could be with just a few soldiers in Syria. And he could offer them whatever they needed to keep them on board and to keep them kind of playing ball with the Iranian way of doing things. They've really lost a, a, a big trump card. And I've seen absolutely no indication that his replacement, Ismail Ghani, is attempting to step into those shoes. I've seen no indication that he's anywhere near as visible and getting out into the ground, getting out in, into the battlefield, onto the ground as much as Qasem Soleimani did. Perhaps he's trying to, to do things differently, but it, even now it's, there's a massive void there. Uh, and I think they know it. I think they're aware of it. The, the sources I speak to in, in some of the Shia militias in Syria, they definitely say that they notice that he's gone. They feel that they're bereft of leadership, that, that top-tier leadership. Yeah, so much stuff is so personality-driven there especially when you're dealing with these militia groups that and he like Soleimani was the person I thought of as being in charge of Iran Mm -hmm. probably just because I focused so much on the military aspect of it and yeah it'll be very interesting to see how this plays out over the next year as everything kind of reconfigures because that's what happens when you have someone that holds that much power there's going to be vacuums yeah Another kind of aspect of this that I think is fascinating, and I know that you've written about a little bit, is what I would call like the court politics of it all, which is, I think, a good place to get a high-level view of how Russia, Syria, and Iran all feel about each other. Can you talk about the Assad family more broadly and its relationship both with Iran and Moscow? The uncles and cousins and etc. Yeah, I think the best way to look at the Assad family now is is through the institution of the presidency, and and look at that as you would any other kind of Syrian state institution, uh, a ministry or a certain part of the army. An overwhelming amount of of power in Syria is focused within the the Syrian presidency, and I would say that the presidency has always been far closer to um, Russia than it has to Iran. I've met, I've spoken with people who work in the, in the office and a lot of them speak Russian. A lot of them have spent time in, in Russia. If you look at the Russian parliament, it's largely a showpiece, but it's, it's quite closely connected to the, the presidency. A lot of, sorry, the Syrian parliament is quite closely connected to the presidency and a lot of the MPs have spent time in Russia uh, and they, they speak Russian or they're studying Russian. So, you know, those ties are, are obvious in that sense. I wouldn't like to, I wouldn't like to label Assad secular. There's a kind of 
uh, a lack of religiousness amongst the Assad family, which I guess you might say te- lends them to, to having closer ties to, to, to Russia mm-hmm. um, than to the kind of IRGC and, and Viliat Ifaki. If I recall correctly, that was one of the selling point is probably the wrong word, but that was one of the things that people were excited about for Bashar al-Assad when he came in, that he was going to be have closer ties to the West and be more secular. Mm-hmm. That was... It was all a facade. It it never happened. He's absolutely used kind of sectarian and religious imagery as and when he's needed to, particularly when the regime has looked its weakest. And now he's opened the door to whether it's Lebanese Hezbollah or other IRGC groups. And I guess you could say that genie is out of the bottle. He has no control over the sort of proselytizing that we see from Iranian-linked groups, which is you know really common in places like Derazor, the regime don't get absolutely the regime is just pumping out and has been for the last you know ten years just pumping out sectarianism, and a lot of his speeches are very sectarian. But I say his 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 father pioneered a lot of that stuff. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I mean that goes back to the Hammer massacre in the in the eighties. I I I don't. There's. I just think there's no evidence that Assad is this kind of that that he lends himself to Viliatifaki, this Iranian system of of governance. Explain. uh, Drill down. Explain that to the audience. Yeah, Viliatifaki is the. I guess the stands for guardianship of the jurisprudent. My. Farsi is a bit rusty, but I believe that's what it understands. And essentially, it's it's this, it's the it's the religious mechanism by which the Iranian regime stakes its claim to power. So I think it, Ayatollah Khomeini, before he came to power, came up with this, and a lot of the kind of Shia clerics dismissed it as ridiculous. I think it's it's originally taken from an obscure edict that would allow the religious establishment to take care of orphans they become a kind of parent of these orphans. And mm-hmm. he essentially expanded that and said, I'll become the, the parent of the nation. And so when you look at the most kind of loyal and strongest IRGC militias have been really strong kind of uh, proponents of Viliati Faki. So that's Lebanese Hezbollah. These guys are like deeply religious. And you can see videos of them pumped out on social media. They go to the shrines in Damascus a lot and in Iraq too. This was a, this is a really important part of the messaging for these groups. But you just, when you look at the messaging that comes out of the, the, the presidency, you don't see this, um, Villiette Faki kind of no being presented. It's more about trying to, a man in a suit trying to be a statesman, a, an international figurehead. And there just isn't that religious imagery uh, that the militias really push out with massive effort and enthusiasm. And there's also, there's two tracks of propaganda, right? Mm-hmm. There's internal and external. There's what, what you release for the rest of the world, and there's what you're telling your people sure. inside. And I guess now more than ever, it's way easier for the people inside to be also viewing what's on the outside and be mm-hmm. connecting dots. Tell what about how has COVID affected all of this? The short answer is no one really knows. Obviously, there is a level of opaqueness. There's a lack of absolute lack, lack of transparency in, in Syria. I guess in that regard, we'll probably never really know the, the true extent. The regime messaging is that we've got everything under control. There's been a curfew out in in Syria, in regime-held Syria. But definitely since I think COVID is hurting the Iranians the most. We saw in, if we go back to February, the COVID story was, especially regionally speaking, the COVID story was all about Iran. We saw those kind of satellite images of mass graves being dug, 
And there was huge numbers of Iranian parliamentarians picking up the disease. And I think COVID-19 has impacted Iranian-linked groups in Syria the most. Groups like the Fatimiyun in the east were basically told not to leave their bases. They were under really strict orders. And this has coincided too with, if, if we look over to Idlib, you only have to go back to to January when Idlib was the big story. That's what all the headlines were about. There was a million people displaced in, in a, a short period of fighting, and there's been a massive lull in violence there. So I think it's affected everyone, but in particular, a real slowing down of Iranian movements within Syria. So whether that's bringing new guys in or bringing new militias in or moving them out or going out on patrols, we've seen that massively reduced. I think they saw the damage it could do back home. And now, you know, the devastation that the kind of the spread of COVID could cause amongst some of those militias, the situations that they're, that they're living in, they, they simply don't have access to anything remotely resembling treatment or medication or anything like that. It could wipe out whole units. So I think it's really put, it pushed the Iranians on the back foot. And then you can, if, if you want, you can throw into that the whole kind of oil crisis as well, right. you know, which is an, another thing that's, that's, that's really hurt. The Iranians were already cash-strapped, of course, Russia too, but Russia were a bit better prepared for it. So you see from multiple angles, the IRGC QF's hands being tied. Which just, I don't know, that's interesting because it, it just feels like it's all up in the air now. The board has been complete. It, somebody picked up the Etch-A-Sketch and shook it. And it's not, like you said, it's not just COVID, but all of the knock-on effects and especially the, the, the complete collapse of the price of oil mm-hmm. has hurt a lot of these countries. Um, yes, certainly. And, and it, doesn't matter, it doesn't matter how how much you're pumping out your ideology. If you're not paying fighters' salaries, it becomes a point where it becomes untenable. And I know for a fact that some of the Iranian groups have not had salaries for one or two months, or they've been delayed. This is becoming more and more common. It's becoming more and more common and frequent. And it doesn't matter what personalities you have, whether you've got Qasem Soleimani around or not, whether you've got, which a lot of these guys still devoutly believe in, if you're not paying salaries, then you start to lose control of your assets. And that's very, I think that's absolutely true for the Iranians in, in Syria. It's maybe a bit different for a group like Le- Lebanese Hezbollah, who have almost become independent. They can cope without the Iranians in many ways because they've got so many different funding sources. But some of the IRGC-linked groups, I, th- and I think the Iranians, I don't want to say the Iranians are losing control of them, but there's questions being asked there which weren't being asked a few years ago. When you miss a few meals, you start, yeah. you start you know, questioning why you're on this particular assignment, right? Yeah. Uh, no matter how ideologically driven you are, it'll only take you so far. Exactly, exactly. And some of these groups really have, not to sympathize with them, but like it, I think a, a, a group like the Fatimiyun Brigades, they've fought some of the worst battles in Syria, and they, they always get the worst assignments from a regime, Iranian perspective. They're always in the first line to go in. That's why they, that's why they become known as cannon fodder. And that, they can only last for so long i think when they're, they're having all that they're dealing with that all of that and then they're not getting paid on top of that they're not getting the residencies that they've been promised a lot of them are, are refugees in iran they don't and they're when they sign up their promised residency for permanent residence in very rarely materializes so once you, you add all these things up you start to get this image that the 
the IGC guys who recruited you from a refugee camp in Iran are not going to deliver and they're not able to deliver. Then that weakens the, the unit as a whole. And that's why commanders like Abdullah Salahi go and speak to the Russians because and the Russians say, we can, we can give you that stability. We can do the things that the Iranians can't do for you. How do you think this all ends for Bashar al-Assad? Or is it just to, or are we just in a period where there's so much flux going on that it could be anybody's game? Yeah, with Assad particularly, we've seen in the last few weeks, we've seen this kind of direct criticism by, not, not directly from the Kremlin, but people close to the Kremlin of Assad and the regime. And there was, there have been articles, there was an article by a, a Russian diplomat a few weeks ago, and he said, the way that the Assad regime is running things, Syria will never be at peace. And there's been a few of these cases of the Russians kind of directly criticizing Assad. And some people have said they're fed up with him. Maybe they're going to, maybe they're grooming a new guy. I, I don't think that's the case. I, I don't think Assad is going anywhere anytime soon. I don't think. Who would you even groom at this point? That's a, that's a good point. The Assad name has become so closely tied to the Syrian regime, right? If you right. go back to Hafez al-Assad or and I was last, I was in Damascus in 2018 and those are, it's Bashar, it's Hafez and it's Maha, the brother. Mm-hmm. It's when you take that into account, you find it hard to envisage someone who isn't an, As- an Assad taking up that mantle because the, that, that the, family name is just so tightly linked to the regime. And the father is still, I'll use a word here, I'm not sure if it applies, but a legendary figure in recent history, right? Yeah, I think there's, this is something that I guess that came out in during the start of the Civil War. You know, uh, Bashar, when he took power, he in, inherited a lot of, not just the apparatus of the, the, the government and the regime and the military, but a, a lot of friends of mm-hmm. his father. So a lot of the, a lot of the senior officers were friends with Hafez and were in their positions because of Hafez's patronage system. And then Bashar inherited that. He didn't have his own friends, his own competent, capable army officers to put in to, you know, head the presidential guard. It's like he was putting on his father's trousers, his father's clothes in a way. You know, it wasn't a suit that was tailored for him. He was wearing his father's hand-me-downs. And that's still the case. It's, it's what, like 20 years? So 20 years since, since Hafez died, but a lot of those individuals are still around and still in very powerful positions. Despite all the uproar in the last 10 years, you know, in some ways, Bashar hasn't really built his own regime. He's still very much running his father's regime. You know, his, his father is, is still there in, in many regards. Yeah, and often on the wall or as a statue staring at you. <laughs> I can't yeah. he's, he's around. Yeah. His presence is felt. Gareth Brown, thank you so much for coming on to War College and walking us through this. Thanks for having me. All right. And where can people find your work? In the Telegraph. You can say, yeah, write regularly for the Daily Telegraph, the Times of London, and Foreign Policy would be the three big Uh, ones. All right. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quinn's is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. 
And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. That's it for War College, War College listeners. If you want to find us online, we will be at angryplanet.substack.com, angryplanetpod.com, and angryplanetpodcast.com. It'll take you to the newsletter and take you to the episodes. We are on uh, Twitter still as at war underscore college, though I expect that will change next week. But as far as what you all need to do, listeners, nothing. Just keep subscribed to the same places. We'll be in the exact same places. It's the name and the logo are going to change. We will be back next week as Angry Planet. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Officially.